You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the presence of God and these witnesses to join this man and this woman in the holy estate of matrimony. If that sounds familiar, that is a classic introduction to what is known as a marriage ceremony. The question I want to answer today is this, is marriage necessary? Is marriage necessary? Uh, With many opting out of marriage, uh, seemingly happily just moving in uh, together, uh, the question is, do I really need a sheet of paper, a piece of paper, uh, to confirm my love for someone else? I believe that the Bible's answer is, yes, you do. I know that the Bible does not talk about marriage licenses, per se, uh, but the Bible does talk a whole lot about marriage. A marriage license is how we in the United States and in other places uh, indicate that a man and a woman have been lawfully joined together. And so today we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, And this is where we're going. Uh, What I want to do is I want to define what marriage is, uh, what it is and who it is for. And then I want to talk secondly about the importance of marriage And then finally, we'll close by talking about the purpose of marriage. This sermon series that we are embarking on, that we are in right now, is what the Bible says about. And what we're trying to do is tackle a bunch of controversial subjects and see how the world has kind of skewed a bunch of these things and even the church has given into um, a lot of error. And so we're going to be turning to the Bible. Uh, There's two main passages that we're going to be in today. Uh, Once again, the green sheet tells you where we're going, but uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and then Ephesians chapter 5 are going to be the main passages that we're going to be in. So I'm going to ask you to actually turn to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Uh, Here, what we have is the situation is that God had created Adam the first man, and he had placed him in this beautiful, lush garden with tons of food and with lots of animals. There was only one problem, one problem, and that problem is addressed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Skipping down to verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. I believe that in this passage, we have the foundation for everything we need to know about marriage. This passage tells us what marriage is. 
It tells us who it is for, and it tells us what it is for. So let's look a little bit deeper into this. The first point is uh, marriage defined. What exactly is marriage? According to Genesis 2.24, marriage is the union of one man with one woman. It is a mystical union where the two come together and although they maintain their individuality, they maintain their own personalities and such, they are now identified with each other. In most cases in the United States, I actually love this practice, the woman actually takes the man's name. And what that's symbolizing is that she is losing her previous identity and is now being identified in a new relationship as a new person, if you will. And I believe that this is consistent with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through 33, where Paul compares the marriage relationship with the relationship that Christ has with his church. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to read verse 23. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Here's the point. When we believe in Jesus... We become Christians. We become Christ followers. And according to 1 Corinthians 6.20, we are no longer our own. I no longer own my body. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And according to Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about baptism. He says that I have been raised up to a new life, a new life. You are baptized into Christ Baptism is an identification ceremony where you are identifying now with Christ. This was my old life. Now I am in Christ. I am forever identifying with Christ. And thankfully for us, our old identity has been done away with. And we are now in Christ. So in marriage, both parties lose their previous identity and assume a new joint identity. And even though I did not change my name on June 17th in the year 2000, I was now, I am now, at that point I was, and to this day I am now identified with another person, my wife. I have become one with her. Ephesians 5.31 is a quote from Genesis 2.24 where he says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That word hold fast literally means to glue one thing to another. To glue one thing to another. And the glue that holds a man and a woman together is the marriage covenant. Just a quick side note. All right, what you see in these verses is that there is a leaving and there is a holding fast. There's a leaving one family and there is a joining of another family, starting a new family. The man and the woman leave their perspective homes and they begin a new independent one. Leave here, the word leave that is used here, means to leave behind or to forsake. 
okay now this doesn't mean that the husband and wife they forsake their you know mom and dad and never have anything to do with them again don't talk to me anymore you know i'm starting a new family no that's not what it means they're still to honor their parents they just have no more uh binding uh ties to their parents and their parents have no more binding ties to them uh in marriage a new family has begun uh, and the relationships of the former families uh, have been severed as far as authority and responsibility are concerned. In a word, parents are to stay out of their kids' marriages, okay? This doesn't mean that they can't pray for them and encourage them and talk to them, but um, I have seen far too many times where parents just keep meddling and meddling, and what happens is that they, they, they cause problems, right, in a marriage. And so uh, there is a leaving there is a leaving and there is a joining to a new family. There's a lot more that could be said about that, but I do want to move on. This union between a husband and a wife is a mystical union, but it is a binding one. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6. He says this regarding marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he adds this. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. They have been joined together by God. Let not man separate them. Marriage is a serious thing. It is a binding covenant relationship. Also implied in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is that marriage is between one man and one woman. Okay, this excludes same-sex unions. We'll discuss that further uh, when we talk about sexuality on August, in, on August 25th. But one of the biggest arguments that's used for same-sex marriages is when they say that Jesus never talked about same-sex marriage. Jesus never condemned same-sex marriage. Uh, therefore, it should be legal. And to that, what I would say is this, that Jesus did not have to talk about it. It was a given uh, in the culture. Uh, we won't go into the biology, but we see uh, that uh, human biology shows that men and women fit together by God's design. Uh, this union between a man and a woman. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, what we see is a man and a woman are brought together. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman. Uh, this was established at the time of creation. Uh, and God's standard for marriage did not change from the, from the point of Adam to Christ, and it has not changed from Christ until now either. An author by the name of Ray Ortland writes this, quote, marriage did not arise from historical forces. It came down by heavenly grace as a permanent good for mankind. It was his, that's God's, to define. And he did define it in Genesis 2.24 as one mortal life, fully shared between one man and one woman, end quote. One of the things that we've been saying all along is that God is the one who created us and God in a sense has a patent on us. And the owner of a patent is the one who determines how this product, if you will, is to be used. And so God is the one who has the patent on us. So marriage is defined as the union of one man and one woman, uh, two separate people coming together as one. I want to move on into the importance of marriage now, and although we've already hinted at it, I want to go a little bit deeper here. Uh, in that opening statement that I said, dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the presence of God and these 
witnesses. The union of a husband and a wife takes place in a public setting before God. God is present. Several years ago, I did a wedding and the couple actually had an empty seat in the front of um, the place, which was symbolic that this seat is being occupied by Jesus, that Jesus is here witnessing what is going on between this man and this woman. So taking that with what we've previously talked about and putting it all together, marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God before the community. Okay? It is a public event that's taking place. When I do uh, premarital counseling, one of the things that I try to do is to uh, show the couple the seriousness of this relationship that they're entering into. I want them to enjoy their wedding day, I really do, uh, but I tell them that this is not some cutesy ceremony. There is symbolism in this ceremony. This is a solemn event that they're entering into. And one of the things that I tell them is this, that every single person that you invite to that wedding, whether it be 10 people or 1,000 people, you are giving every single one of those people permission to speak into your life so that if let's say five to 10, 20 years down the road, you run into them and they say, hey, how is it going? How, how are you and your wife doing? And you say, hey, uh, we're kind of not doing well. We kind of fallen out of love and we're gonna, we're gonna call it quits. You are giving them permission to say, no, 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 no. I was there on that day in June when you stood before me and several other witnesses and you said that you would love this woman for better, for worse for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. You made a solemn oath, a covenant before God and me. I was there, I witnessed it, that you would not do what you're doing right now. You cannot do that. You made a covenant. Now I know that very often we don't think in those terms, but I think that we should think in those terms because there's so much divorce and we just kind of turn a blind eye to it. Oh, well, there's nothing I can do. Yes, there is something that you can do. You can hold them accountable. You can encourage them in their marriage. Remember what Jesus said. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. That means you, as the, as the husband and wife, you don't even have permission to tear that relationship apart. Furthermore, speaking of the importance of marriage, uh, it's God's design that marriage reflect the relationship that God has with his church, that Christ has with his church. Um, through marriage, here's the, the bottom line, is that we learn more about God's love for us in marriage. And as we strive to grasp the dimensions of God's love for us, we learn how to love each other in the process as well. This brings us to the purpose of marriage, and there are a ton of purposes to marriage. I'm not going to go over all of them uh, right now. Uh, it would take us probably a couple weeks to unpack them. I just want to give you a few. Uh, and uh, first of all, let me tell you what marriage is not for. 
because I think we're starting to get it really wrong in our culture now. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a book that I highly, highly recommend, um, I actually recommend that you probably, as a couple, read through it every other year uh, because there's a whole lot of good stuff uh, in there, the meaning of marriage. But he notes this. He says this, quote, both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They are all looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. Older views of marriage are considered to be traditional and oppressive, while the newer view of the me marriage seems so liberating. Keller goes on to show that this does not work because marriage is so much more than personal fulfillment. Remember, marriage is to reflect the relationship that Jesus has with his church. What did Jesus do for his church? What did he do for his church? Well, here's what he did. He sacrificed everything for his church, right? He sacrificed everything for her. He gave up the glories of heaven came down as a man so that he could be with his church, so that he could redeem his church. Although he was rich, as 1 Corinthians says, he became poor so that he could be with his church. He stood in the place of his church. The church, the people, us human beings, deserve the wrath of God. He stood in our place and took the full wrath of God on himself to deliver us, his church, the bride, so that we could be with him. That's what Jesus did for his church. This is not a me relationship, right? This was a sacrificial relationship here. So the first purpose of marriage is, yes, we should be reflecting the relationship that Christ has with his church. Uh, but I also want to bring out another one. And I want you, if you're in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, I want you to see this uh, beginning in verse 25. Paul speaking to husbands, he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. There's so much in these verses, but I just want you to notice that one of Christ's desires for his church, his bride, is that his bride might be sanctified, that they might be made holy, more and more conformed into the image of Christ. In a similar way, husbands and wives can do the same thing. How, you may ask? Once again, in his book, uh, uh, Keller says this, and I love this. He says, quote, within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. 
And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word and the gospel, end quote. So you see that as a husband and a wife, what you do is you possess the very word of God, the word of God, which can transform someone. And that is to be used, as to be used uh, to see your spouse become more like Christ. It involves, and, and sometimes it might involve when, when they are just feeling defeated, when they're feeling like they're rejected by everyone, when they don't feel like they measure up. It's reminding them that according to the word of God, you are in Christ. You are a beloved daughter of Christ. You're a beloved son of Christ. You are identified with him and he loves you. It also involves pointing in a loving and longing way, pointing out maybe sin that's in their life uh, so that that sin uh, can be dealt with and then removed because it's hindering them from becoming all that God has intended for them to be. So, just, uh, so that's one of the primary purposes for marriage is to see each other conformed into the image of Christ, encouraging each other uh, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly uh, in the word of God. I want to go over four more uh, quick purposes for marriage as found in Genesis chapters uh, 1 and 2. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, And the first one is this, that marriage is for companionship. Marriage is for companionship. Once again, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then going back to the statement in Genesis 2:24, uh, it says this, the two shall become one flesh. And here's what I want you to know. You and your spouse are to do life together. You and your spouse are to be best friends. And you should cherish your spouse. You should cherish your husband, you should cherish your wife as the treasure that they are, that God has entrusted to you. This is one of the reasons that God created marriage so that you could walk through life with someone that you enjoy, with your spouse as your primary relationship, a person that knows you better than anyone else knows you. Let me just stop here and say uh, that, yes, I do acknowledge that this is not always true of every relationship. In fact, there may be people here today that are struggling in their marriage relationship. Uh, And maybe at this point, you really don't like the person that you are married to. Uh, You may have liked them prior to the wedding ceremony and even on the wedding day, but something has happened along the way. They have changed. Tim Keller once again addresses this in his book, and he says this, quote, the Marriage brings you into more intense proximity to another human being than any other relationship can. Therefore, the moment you marry someone, you and your spouse begin to change in profound ways. And you cannot know ahead of time what those changes will be. So you don't know, you can't know, who your spouse will actually be in the future until you get there. Over the years, you will go through seasons in which you have to learn to love a person who you did 
not Mary, who is something of a stranger. You will have to make changes that you do not want to make, and so will your spouse. The journey may eventually take you into a stronger, tender, joyful marriage, but it is not because you married the perfectly compatible person. That person doesn't exist. The biblical doctrine of sin explains why marriage, more than anything else that is good and important in this fallen world, is so painful and hard, end quote. The bottom line is this, okay? All of us, all of us are deeply, deeply flawed human beings. And a close relationship like marriage brings out those flaws like nothing else can. You can't hide them. You're living with that person. Uh, you're, 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 uh, day in and day out, you're with them. And those flaws just start to magnify themselves. But remember this. Your marriage is to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. Christ is the husband in this relationship. And Jesus, as the husband, is dealing with a deeply, deeply flawed wife. Right? us. He's dealing with us. Jesus is dealing with a deeply flawed spouse. And yet here's the beautiful thing. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't call it quits. He doesn't say, get away from me. What does he do? He presses in. He pursues his bride like the father and the prodigal son pursues his son. He loves us. He cannot give us up. He won't give us up. He will never leave or forsake us. There's a beautiful statement in a different context in John 15, 15, where Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And here's what I want to say is that God knows us and he has given us the wonderful privilege of getting to know him as well. And here's the most astounding thing of all. He knows you completely and perfectly. He knows you even better than you know yourself. All the flaws that you know that just stick out, he knows, you don't even know the half of it. He knows them all. And yet he still loves us. He still, I love there's a passage in Isaiah that says this, that he rejoices over us as a bride, uh, as a groom rejoices over his bride. And then uh, Zephaniah says this, that he rejoices over us with loud singing. I think about that. Me? Me? Do you really know me? And the answer is yes, he does. And he still loves us. I am deeply, deeply flawed. And my husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not, will not, will never give up on me. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Will your spouse have flaws? Absolutely, right? No one's saying amen there, but that's good, all right? Will your spouse have flaws? Absolutely, right? Will you run because of those flaws or will you press in? And unfortunately, many run. Many run. It's too hard. It's too hard. I just don't want to be married to this person anymore. It's too difficult when they should be pressing in. You're in a covenant, a binding relationship with another person. You've been joined to them, and that is a good, good thing that God has called you into. Usually when I perform a, uh, when I do marriage counseling or perform a, a wedding, what I do is I will talk about the significance of the wedding ring, 
Now, this is beautiful. This ring that is on my hand has a dual purpose here. It reminds me, first of all, that I have made a commitment, a covenant with a woman. I have made a covenant with her that I have promised to be with her through the good times and through the bad times. I promise to be with her. I promise to remain faithful to her. But more importantly, I will say for my heart, this wedding ring reminds me that there is a woman who has committed to me. She put this ring on my hand 21 years ago and she said, I promise to be with you through the good times, through the bad times. And I'm gonna tell you over 21 years of marriage, there have been some really rough times. There's been losses of job. There's been losses of friends. There have been times when I have been reduced to tears and just crying. I remember sitting on my stairs one time when I lost a job and just crying and crying and lost friends and lost so much. And I honestly was able to look at this ring and to say, there is someone who promised to be with me through it all whether I have to move out of the state, whether we have to make a whole new life together, whatever it is, there is someone who has promised to be with me. That's what this ring on my finger means. That she will not leave me. She will not forsake me. She will be with me for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I have a companion to do life with me. Marriage was designed by God for companionship. A second purpose for marriage, uh, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is for gardening, okay? Now, I'm not talking about you have to go in your backyard, right, and you have to garden with your wife or whatever, put, put some flowers in. That's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 says this, Then the Lord God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over everything that lives and moves on the earth. And so when you combine those verses in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, with Genesis chapter 2, uh, 15, you see that Eve was given the same mandate that Adam was as well. She was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. One author said this, he said this, humans were created to rule over the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew word translated rule means to actively partner with God in taking the world somewhere. And the word subdue means to harness the raw materials that make up the planet, all that pent up potentiality and make something beautiful. In the modern world, we call it work. We were created to work, but not just any kind of work, to work for human flourishing to partner with God and to make a garden-like world in which humans can thrive and God can walk with his people in the cool of the day. The Hebrews call this shalom, shalom. The point is that we were created to work. You and your spouse are to work for human flourishing. This doesn't mean that you have to work for the same company. It doesn't mean that you have to work in the same place. 
uh, it means that, I mean, in fact, one may be called uh, to, to progress human flourishing through staying home and, and raising up children. Or they may be called to work for human flourishing by running a multi-million dollar company. Whatever it is, you are to find your little corner of the garden and you are to work it, encouraging one another in your specific and your respective callings. Encouraging your spouse and saying, you're doing a great job. Press on, press on as they encourage you and say, you're doing a great job. Press on, press on. Adam was called by God to take care of Eden. But it was a work which was more than for just one man. Eden was massive. Adam was incapable of doing it by himself. He needed help, which is why God created Eve. And God said, I will make a helper suitable for him. The word helper uh, that is used in uh, that passage is Azar in the uh, Hebrew. And Azar can be translated as a partner or one who comes alongside of another to achieve a goal. Another author put it this way, uh, Azar is almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. God is our helper. Other times it is used to describe military help, such as reinforcements without which the battle would be lost. To help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. Woman was made to be a strong helper. If you think, if you think about this definition, woman was made to make up the deficiencies which were in man, to come alongside of him, to help him in human flourishing. We work together. Can't just have man, can't just have woman, you have them together. So marriage is for companionship, it's for gardening. Another purpose for marriage is for sex. God made us as sexual beings. And only in the context of marriage are we able to express our sexuality. I say only because sex is a very powerful act. I know that our culture doesn't see it as such, but it's a very powerful act. Sex joins a man and a woman together in a physical and emotional union. There's a physical and an emotional union that is going on. First of all, two bodies are coming together. Secondly, if you know the science of it, there are thousands of neurotransmitters that are being released, which really do sear that, uh, that act into your memory. And I believe that's by God's design because he wants them to become one. Sex is not just a physical act. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb uh, yourself to its, uh, to its original impulses, sex makes you feel personally interwoven, joined together to another human being as you are literally being physically joined. It's not just an act. Instead, sex is a whole life. It's a whole life self-giving. And this is why, because the human heart is so selfish, because the human heart is so prone to misuse all of the good gifts of God. This is why if you look in the Bible that God gives so many boundaries, so many restrictions regarding sex. He says, I know you're going to mess it up. I know you're going to use it for selfish reasons. And so God puts so many boundaries around it. And this is why sex should only be exercised in the bounds of marriage. Basically, the Bible is saying this. Listen to this. The Bible is saying this, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with that person emotionally, socially, economically, 
legally and personally. Do you hear that? Don't unite with someone sexually unless you're also ready to unite with them emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked or vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable in every other way with that person. Okay? Uh, you give up your uh, freedoms in marriage. You're bound to another person. But although sex, uh, but although marriage, the, although the marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also vital to the marriage covenant as well. Sex is an integral part of marriage, which is why the Bible doesn't shy away from it. There's an entire book in the Old Testament that is devoted to uh, marital sexual love, and which why in the in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says, "Don't deprive one another of your conjugal rights." The wife does not have a right over her own body. The husband does not have a right over his own body. Don't deny yourself. It is a very, very important part of the marriage covenant. There's a lot more that could be said about sex. Um, we can talk about that tonight um, uh, as we meet at 6.30, or we'll talk about it further on August 25th. The final thing, the final purpose for marriage, uh, according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is for family. Okay, marriage is for family. Uh, God's message to the couple in Genesis 1:28 was this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They were to make others uh, who would help them fill the earth and subdue the earth. And that's really all I'm gonna say about family right now because next week, uh, Alan will be talking about family. And so I'm gonna save that for next week. So here's what I want you to take away from what we've talked about today. There's a couple things. First of all, Marriage is a wonderful, wonderful gift that has given, been given to us by our amazing creator. I love it. Once again, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God created relationships. Marriage is a wonderful gift given to us by our creator. Second thing is this. Although marriage is a wonderful gift, if you've been married for any length of time, you know that marriage can also be very difficult and it can be trying as well. Uh, some couples, I understand that there are some couples who barely fight. Praise God for that. But I would say that the majority of couples uh, fight. And the reason I can say that is because you look at the divorce rates uh, that are prevalent in the United States. There's a lot of marital conflict that is, that is going on. Marriage is hard, hard work. It's hard work, which is why it should not be entered into lightly. And although love does involve feelings, right? At the end of the day, love is a choice. It is a choice, okay? Uh, it is a choice to love a, another person by being patient with them. Man, they're so annoying. They keep doing this over and over again. And love says, I'm gonna be patient with this person until Christ is formed in them. Love, it, it loves them by not keeping a record of wrong. It doesn't say, yep, she said it again. Yep, he did it again. It doesn't do that. It loves them by, look, by waking up in the morning and say, what can I do to make my wife's day just that much easier? What burdens can I take off of my husband today that would make his day or his week easier? Love never fails. It doesn't give up. It's a choice third thing I want you to know is this. I want you to see your spouse as your best friend. I said this before, cherish your spouse. Cherish them. Cherish them. I know that there are 
uh, days, there may be several days when you really don't like them, right? Or they're just annoying you. And here's what I'm going to say. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. Thank God and take great joy in the fact that someone has committed to you to do life with you and to be with you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Thank God for that and cherish your spouse. Recognize, yes, that they are a sinner, that they are far, far from perfect, but so are you as well. Seek to see Christ formed in them. And when you see little progress or great progress, just rejoice and say, thank God. And those days when it seems like sin is winning the day, get on your knees and pray for them. And say, oh God, oh God, deliver my spouse. They're struggling. They're losing right now. Deliver them from this. And finally, what I want to say is this. You can only do this, I believe, if Christ is the center of your relationship. Jesus has to be the center of your relationship. Read the Bible together with your spouse. Pray together with your spouse. Talk about what it means to see Christ formed in them. Your marriage relationship is to reflect the relationship that Jesus has with this church. That was a self-sacrificial relationship intent on seeing the other person become more and more like Christ, what they were intended to be. Like I said, there's so much more that we could say here. Um, This is why we have our discussions on Sunday night during the summer. Um, As we've been saying, there's a three by five card that is in the seat in front of you. If you have any questions that maybe was confusing that I said today or maybe I didn't cover today, just want to encourage you. You can fill out that three by five card. There's a little uh, box in the back by the coffee. You can put that in there. Um, We'll be looking at those and we'll be discussing those tonight. But in the meantime, uh, just pray for the marriages in this church, in this community. I know that there's visitors here that are from other churches. Pray for the marriages that are in your church that they would flourish, that you would do everything in your power to make sure that they are staying together, that they're flourishing, uh, and that you would, I'm going to say this, get in other people's business, right? So you can encourage them in their walk with Christ, in their marriage. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we could come together and talk about these things. We thank you so much for the gift of marriage. You're a wonderful, wonderful God. We know that you, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, live in community, and it's a perfect, loving community. And so I pray that our relationships could reflect that as well. I pray that every husband in here would love his wife uh, as Christ loves the church. And I pray, God, that marriages would flourish, that they wouldn't just maintain that they wouldn't just scrape by, Lord, but that they would flourish. And I pray against the enemy. There's a real enemy who wants to come in and to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he loves to do. He loves to tear apart families and relationships. But we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we just pray against that. Strengthen us. Help us to be uh, in each other's business in a good way, encouraging each other. And at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that it would be all about you and not about us. So often we make it about us, my needs, my fulfillment, my whatever. And so we just pray, God, that as we live in relationship with our spouses, other people around us, or even as we come and worship you, that it would be all about you. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.